0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Julie Fotheringham, psychoanalyst, dancer, and performance artist in New York City.
1: interesting, at least to begin with, is my own uh, combination of dance and psychoanalysis. And I I think initially I wrongly divided them as being two uh, different things, that dance and the body and movement is one thing, and then psychoanalysis is something else, which is um, my initial idea of what psychoanalysis is, I I viewed it as as being something more intellectual, not so much the body, which was kind of a ridiculous idea because I've realized now that the body is so much a part of psychoanalysis. Um, But I... I initially made this divide uh, feeling like the first half of my life was dance. And then now I, you know, it was in my 30s that I discovered psychoanalysis. And I had the idea that I was going to move towards something entirely different. Like now I'm going to be intellectual and uh, do this thing that's completely different from dance. Um, And the way that I initially heard about psychoanalysis. Um, because I'd, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a part of my life. I didn't know what it was actually. Um, it was an ex boyfriend, someone who I was, I was dating, um, 10 years ago, who is an academic and he, um, a very, uh, accomplished academic tenure professor. Um, and he was interested in psychoanalysis and also interested in the possibility of, um, doing psychoanalytic training and becoming an analyst himself so I got curious about psychoanalysis like what is this thing that he is so interested in um, someone who is already accomplished in our field like why would you why would you need something else like why why would that be interesting so I think that sparked my initial uh, curiosity is this like mysterious thing that I knew nothing about but it was interesting to him so it must be interesting <laughs> so um, that was my initial, uh, I, I, I feel like a lot of the things that I've, I've gotten really interested in, in my life have started as this sort of enigmatic, uh, thing that I know nothing about, <laughs> but there's like some hint of there must be something there. Um, so that was my, uh, my initial, uh, Introduction. So then I started looking at, into it myself and uh, with Freud, and then later on I got in, interested in Lacan. Um,
0: But I think it's a really good point because a lot of people think of it as this really intellectual exercise and it's seen also as this kind of like narcissistic, indulgent thing that people do. They go and lay there four times a week, five times a week, just talk about themselves. But it is really visceral and it does have everything to do with the body and I think that's something that's been left out a lot or isn't really understood.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think maybe because... um,
1: he was an academic and um, a like philosophy professor, so I think I had the idea of, like I just lumped it in with being something really intellectual. Um, and then also my entry into Lacan was initially via Bruce Fink, who um, focuses a lot on the the early Lacan. So it's very much the symbolic. It's about the signifier. It's about speech. It's about language. Um, so. I think that reinforced my idea that it's um, that, that the body isn't really uh, that primary. Um, but then now, with the the group that I study with, where uh, we read the the work of Miller, um and his interpretations of Lacan, which really brings it back around to the body that uh, it's looking more at the late Lacan. and uh, like he, I think he even takes it a step further to where uh, the unconscious, it, it, it's not so much the, I'm, the old Lacan still applies, but, um, it's not so much focused on, uh, the unconscious structured like a language with the unconscious as real and the speaking body being the unconscious. So it, uh, I think I kind of went when I thought I was moving away from dance and away from the body, um, like it circled itself back around <laughs> to, uh, to touch the body again. And so I think it's been an interesting, uh, pathway.
0: That's great because I haven't really read a lot of Maler and I was just thinking since the last guest that I had on, uh, Isabel Millar, she was talking about Malerian ideas as well. And I realized that I really want to re- start reading Maler as well. And now that you say mm-hmm. that, that's really sounds like more in line with my way of thinking about things too. Great.
1: Yeah. I, I listened to that episode and I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I, I think I've, like, I've sensed a little bit in, in New York City anyway that there's a divide between, like, the Malarians and the not-so-Malarians, um, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not so interested in the politics of that, but I think it was, it was just an act of contingency that I, um, that I ended up in the group that was more malarian, um, just like somebody who I knew intro- introduced me to the group I started going to the group and then like it ended up being malarian, <laughs> but then it ended up being perfect for me anyway because it was because it is um, in contact with the body
0: well, What's it been like kind of transitioning from a life of being a professional dancer to being a psychoanalyst? It's, um, it's been
1: Challenge. I uh, most uh, most dancers that I know who move into some sort of therapeutic practice, they usually go towards something more body oriented, um, either involving movement or touch. Uh, uh, it probably would have made more sense for me to move into something like that or to move into dance movement therapy. Uh, but those things weren't interesting to me. I think that the fact that, uh, that psychoanalysis uh, was so foreign to me, that that's what made it interesting. It was like something entirely different. Like I had been a body person my whole life. Like I know movement, I know my body, like I don't have anything. I mean, there's always more to learn, but it's like, I feel like I kind of did that. Um, and then the world of psychoanalysis was such like a, a challenge to me. It was like, I was walking into this, uh, I don't know, it's so like such an alien space that, and I um, like I'm not even really much of a, a speaker, like I'm a, a pretty quiet person. So i I felt like I was moving into this world of speech from, uh, more the, the world of the body where I feel comfortable, uh, dancing and expressing myself bodily, um, into this place where I feel entirely uncomfortable. Um, so it was kind of a crazy decision to move in that direction, but I think that there was something, there was something pulling me towards it. And I, I, um, I think that it's, I continue to, uh, be in formation as a, um, always becoming psychoanalyst. I I don't think I'll ever master it, um, which is good. Um, because then what do you do? Once you, once you've figured it all out, where are you going to go from there? Um, so yeah, I continue, yeah, I continue to,
0: uh, to try to figure it out it sounds like a necessary kind of polarity to start like integrating yeah um and
1: I d- like I don't think that uh, the polarity or the separation that I, um, initially created, which I think is like a false divide, like body and mind, like there's something different. Um, but that's how I had understood it. Um, I I don't think that it was working very well for me initially because it was was like all of a sudden I was in this foreign territory and it's like, what do I do with my body? Like, Oh, I'm not allowed to dance. You know, (laughs) know? like as an analyst, I sit and listen, or as a patient, I lay on the couch and speak. And it's like, where, uh where is my body and where is the body in psychoanalysis. Uh but then the more that I've practiced, I see like the body is all over the place, like the, in the speech and people talking about their bodies and without using the body uh directly, like there's no uh movement or contact, but, but the body is very present in the room.
0: Yeah, and I noticed as well I took voice lessons a few years ago and um the body was so present and and my memories were so present when I was using my voice and I hadn't realized before uh how physical your voice is but of course it is but I hadn't really thought about it in that way until I started having to use it in different ways and trying to sing or speak differently and it was like stretching in ways that it hadn't in a long time or moving in ways that it hadn't ever and like all these childhood memories were coming up and like bodily sensations it was so fascinating
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's really helpful to to keep in mind that the that speech speech is bodily and the voice comes from the body it's not something like that's you know off detached somewhere else that it is i mean you know there's speech is the speech of or language of the other but still it, like the voice itself like the uh uh reverberations of the voice it, it is bodily mm-hmm.
0: yeah i think that's something that's just starting to like come back into like the practice of psychoanalysis it's like the mind and body and voice are not separate you know that it's one we're one organism and it sounds like so banal but it's true and it's really lost there's not this like mind body divide maybe that's why like when people used to think of having a soul, maybe that was kind of a problem with that, as they thought of it as something other that was like entrapped in the body. But it's not—we're not, not an other thing entrapped in the body. Yes, I I agree with what you said
1: <laughs> about the soul being something uh, like separate from the body, and that's not not necessarily the case.
0: Um, what about dreams? What about dreams? <laughs> What's your dream life like? <laughs> like my actual dreams? <laughs>
1: um, my, yeah, my unconscious is very active and gives me information. Um, occasionally I'll dream about a patient and I think it gives me some, some clue as to what to do or not do with them. Uh, which is really interesting my my dream life is very active as well <laughs> yeah i think especially i I'm, I'm in my own psychoanalysis as well and i um like i make a conscious effort to remember them and i think that before i was in my analysis like i would dream and kind of remember it and i never really made much of it but now uh recognizing the importance of dreams and i'll write it down in my journal some of them i'll tell to my analysts i just like never make it into the room um but they
0: still um are alive in some way it still has an effect like you said even if you dream of a patient or something uh you don't have to bring it into the room it still has an effect you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or like if you talk about someone in supervision whenever I've noticed whenever I talk about a certain patient in supervision there's always like a shift in the treatment even though clearly the patient doesn't know but I was talking about them in supervision you know exactly and I found that it's like almost
1: uh, it feels kind of uh, supernatural in a way uh, that all of a sudden uh, whatever sort of, like if feeling stuck on a case and uh, then I go into the next session with the patient and all of a sudden like something's shifted mm-hmm. It's like how did you even uh, know we were talking about you um, the unconscious yep <laughs> well I thought it might um be uh interesting to uh, tell a little bit of my my story of being a dancer so i um I was a gymnast when I was younger, and when um i, I think the the big story of my um performing career when I was in was a professional dancer um, and acrobat uh, is the story around um, Cirque du Soleil and uh I I think similar to my introduction to psychoanalysis, um, it was another thing that started out as this uh, enigma that had some sort of appeal, like there must be something there. And the way that I first uh, heard about Cirque du Soleil was by my sister who was living in Las Vegas. And this is in the early 90s. And it was the new thing that everybody was talking about in Vegas, and it was like this really bizarre avant-garde performance, is how she described it. <laughs> and I was like, what is this thing? It must be really interesting. And uh, she had made me a copy of the soundtrack of Mystere, um, on cassette tape. And I remember listening to the soundtrack like over and over again. And it has like, uh, you know, kind of like new agey music and, uh, the, all of the lyrics are like a made up language. So it seemed like really mysterious and bizarre. And I was like, what is this thing? It sounds really like fascinating. Um, so then it was when I, we, we ended up moving to Vegas. And then when I was a gymnast in uh, Gymcats gym Gymnastics in Las Vegas, uh, my gymnastics coach there uh, just happened to be a performer in Mr. So it, he got me in to see the show from the light booth. And when I saw it, it like I, I felt like it was the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. That uh, As a gymnast with... Uh, a sort of a naive uh, aesthetic standard. Like, I, I think that I, uh, it was the first thing that I had seen that, uh, like, theater thing that uh, resembled art, and I was so excited about it. Uh, elements of it that were just uh, kind of bizarre or mysterio- mysterious uh it just like pulled me into um, into the performance, and it was uh, I decided that that's what I want to do. That's uh, I want to be a performer in Cirque du Soleil. But at the time, um, it wasn't even that that much of a goal. Like I thought it was more. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could if I could be in Cirque du Soleil? But not feeling like that would ever actually be a possibility. Like not even really knowing like how to go about doing that. Um, So it wasn't until a couple of years later that I actually auditioned. And in that audition, I was cut, uh, like, right away. Like, they had us do some tumbling on the floor and then got rid of a bunch of people. And uh, I, (laughs) I think that I had... Like the delusional idea that I was going to get in on the first audition. Um, so I was just like devastated. I'm like, oh no, my dreams are crushed. Um, but then it was two years later that I auditioned again. And in that audition, I actually made it all, all the way through to the end, which made me a potential candidate to be in one of their shows. And at that point, I thought something would come of it, uh, but nothing did. So then it was, I believe two years later, I, I auditioned again and in that audition I was cut. <laughs> so it was like, a, now am I not a candidate anymore? Um, so then at that point I, I decided to put in one, uh, one last effort to, to get in and I put together a demo, um, demo video and sent it to Montreal. And it's like, this is, uh, you know, my last shot. And then I, at at that point, I had been hired by Disney to perform in Tokyo in their theme park. Um, So I'm like, I send off the video, one last shot, and like, now I'm just going to forget about it. This is something that's not going to happen. Um, You know, I tried my best. It's just not going to happen. Um, So then it wasn't until I was in um, Tokyo for a while, and I would... uh, this is like in the early 2000s so I, at the time like I didn't even have a computer so I would go to the internet cafe occasionally and check my check my email and one day I went into and I was checking my my Hotmail account and just like by chance I was like I wonder what went to my spam like I never look at the spam so I went I went to my spam account and there was an email from the casting director of Cirque du Soleil um, inviting me to to come and be um, in a workshop for one of their new shows with they're creating for Las Vegas. So that was uh how it how it finally happened.
0: I didn't know you lived in Tokyo.
1: Yeah, I was in yeah, it was in I was in my early 20s at the time. Um yeah, I lived in Tokyo for a year and a half performing in a show uh for for Disney. What was that like? Um I, well, Tokyo was difficult, I think because I was so young and kind of ignorant at the time and having this sort of uh, idea of like American-ness uh, that it was, the, the culture was so different from what I was used to that I, I really didn't like it at all. Uh, I think now I would have a more, um, a more sophisticated way of approaching uh Japanese culture but at the time I was just uh like I don't understand why everybody conforms and everybody follows the rules (laughs) like it didn't make any sense to me and like really follows the rules like we I actually got in trouble for crossing the street on a a a no no walk (laughs) sign so it's like very kind of rigid and uh and, like, everybody's so, uh, compliant and obedient, and I just really didn't like that, I was, like, I made me
0: too much of a rebel for it. So you lived in Vegas, and what was that like? What was it like being in Cirque du Soleil? Um, Vegas, uh, yeah, I lived in Vegas for 12 years, I actually
1: moved there midway through high school, um, I don't, Vegas is kind of, like, a, an odd place to live, like, it's very boring, um, I mean, the, where the houses are, it's like the suburbs, you know, you have your Walmart and, uh, and then the center is all the tourism. Um, I actually prior, well, prior to being in Cirque du Soleil, I worked in two other Las Vegas productions that, uh, actually in retrospect, I think I had more fun. Um, I was in the show that used to be at the Luxor and, uh, it was called Imagine, and it was kind of it, trying to be Cirque du Soleil, but not quite up to the standard. <laughs> but I, I feel like I had more fun in that show than when I finally got into Cirque du Soleil. It was, like, the, the thing that I wanted. Uh, but it's always that way. <laughs> maybe not
0: always but i think always
1: <laughs> yeah, it's always such a disappointment once you get this thing that
0: you thought was going to be something and i was like oh, okay it's the, the thing, thing. <laughs> it's never the thing yeah
1: exactly. yeah and i think that's why um Once I got into Cirque, and it was such a process getting in, um, I only stayed for one contract. Um, And my my contract was for the the creation of the show, and then for two years of performing the show. So it ended up being like three, almost four years uh, altogether. But once my initial contract was finished, at that point, I decided that I wanted to move to New York to be more of an artist. So I had to shift my my want to something else.
0: That's what I was going to ask, how you ended up in New York,
1: Well, what's funny is when I uh, when I gave up on getting into Cirque and went to Tokyo, uh, my thought was, okay, Cirque isn't going to happen. So I'm going I have to figure out something else to want. And I so at that point it was like, okay, after Tokyo, I'm either going to move to New York City or I'm going to go somewhere in Europe. Uh, to be... Uh, I, I had two different things that I wanted to do, to be in a modern contemporary dance company that uh, where I really uh, was invested in the work, and then also I wanted to create my own performances. Um, but then, like... Then I ended up getting into Cirque, so I had to reshift my my thinking to go back to Vegas. And then um, at the end of that contract, I decided that I would move to New York City. And with the aim, I had the initially, I had the idea that I was going to do a solo show uh, that never never ended up happening. I uh, applied to uh, a few different venues and didn't I didn't find a venue for it. And then I met. My collaborator that I worked with for years, uh, and we we worked as a duet. and He's he's not a dancer; he's a video artist and musician. Uh, so he would do. We did a lot of stuff with technology and like live uh, cameras and projection, uh, and then uh, incorporating movement. Um, and We uh, we worked together for about five years, and then now he's living in. Uh, Zurich so that was the end of our uh, collaboration.
0: So what's his name? My collaborator? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jared Lauder. And he's in Zurich now?
1: Yeah he or not in Zurich but like in the mountains somewhere around Zurich. Yeah he um, he was but when he was in New York City he was a professor at the School of Visual Arts and we used—I we, 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 um, was fortunate that he had those resources. We used the the space there to rehearse and also used a lot of their equipment for our performances, which is uh, like something we wouldn't have had uh, access to all of that if it wasn't for his connections. I think that worked out well.
0: So are you doing any dance pieces currently or recently or— i I occasionally perform I think my main
1: venue right now is I uh, video myself dancing and then post it online uh, but I there's also another um, I think because I don't have a lot of a time to invest in doing a full-scale production. I do more low-key improvisation work, and there's a series that I uh, participate in every once in a while that's put on by Movement Research. That's uh, it's very casual, low-key, in a dance studio that I'll, I'll perform in that every once in a while. And we're also doing something actually. Uh, the Candidate Journal. Uh, is going to be we're having a event uh in april where there will be performances so i'll do um some sort of improvisation as a part of that how did that come about um so we yeah we we're finally releasing our latest issue and in celebration of that uh and also to raise money for to cover the expenses of the journal uh decided to put on a a performance event and uh just thinking that that would be more interesting than other things. The usual,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about what the candidate journal is. How- um, yeah. So we the the candidate journal uh, we inherited it
1: from a previous board of editors, and it was uh, what it is. Is uh, the idea is that candidates from all different institutes in New York City uh, tend to not. Uh, communicate with each other and then also to get so it's like not uh we're not affiliated with any particular institute but uh, creating a space where candidates of various institutes can be published and i think actually one thing that's uh really good about the issue that we're coming out with right now is that I think almost all of the uh, articles that we're publishing are written by candidates, whereas the previous issue, uh, it, which is an excellent issue, but a lot of it was more established uh, practitioners. So I think that we're really giving a space for candidates to
0: to be able to publish. That's wonderful. And who's working on it with you now? The The issue editors for this issue, which is on
1: screens... Uh, is myself, um, Emma Lieber, Anna Fishone, and Monroe Street are the other people
0: participating. And how did the idea for Screens come about? I think that was Emma's idea initially. Do you ever think about writing about the body and dance and psychoanalysis? I think so. I think I'm... uh,
1: I'm still figuring it out. I, um, I'm part of a cartel now. I just started being part of a cartel that is, uh, the theme of the cartel is the body. Um, and my own particular question is the, the, the place of the body, uh, in the practice of psychoanalysis, because I feel like that's where I'm the most, uh, lost, like you know, with the, being analyst sitting in the chair. Being patient, laying on the couch. Where, where is the body in this situation? Um, which is a, an ongoing question for myself. And I, th- um, I mean, part of the uh, the idea of an uh, of a cartel is that you will produce something at the end. You'll, you'll produce a work of writing. So we'll see what, what comes out of that. I hope to um, to have. I think it's an ongoing question for me, and an ongoing project to 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 try to. Uh, I don't know why it's so precarious that the two keep separating themselves, <laughs> um, but to 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 keep to figure out like the place of the
0: body in in the practice of psychoanalysis. Well, that's a good point, too, because the psycho, the positions in psychoanalysis are so particular. Like, there's no other time where you're laying on a couch and somebody's sitting behind you listening to you in that way, you know? It's like such a particular position for the bodies to be in. But that's yeah. not written about a whole lot or talked about. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really bizarre.
1: And there was... Uh, I have kind of a funny story. In my, my previous analysis, I... Um, I, you know, I was laying on the couch, he's, he's sitting behind me. Um, and there, like, there was a food delivery person who like had the wrong door and like, didn't knock or anything, but just like opened the door. <laughs> and I was like laying on the couch and like, he's sitting there and like, just what does that look like? You know, on surprise, like what, what would people think were going on? Um, it is like if you do actually take a step back and look at it it's really bizarre that that arrangement it's
0: weird yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it's meant I mean it puts you in a really vulnerable position and that's that's part of it and that's part of why uh it helps you to speak but there's definitely it's it's definitely unusual and it definitely takes getting used to I mean I can't I feel like I've been involved with psychoanalysis in some way for some so long now that I can't really remember what it was like before or in the, right in the beginning. Um, but I'm sure it was quite an adjustment to get into the kind of rhythm of this sort of situation and setup. Yeah, yeah, it
1: can be really difficult. For I've had patients that move to the couch and then go back to sitting up. Uh, yeah, it can be really. It, it's it's hard i find it's it's hard to speak when you're um in that situation
0: yeah i'm flexible with that too i've had patients move back and forth before as well um so they don't have to feel like just because you try the couch now you're like stuck to the couch forever you know <laughs> like if, if you need to you can sit up or I've had people go both directions and the same thing with the frequency of the treatment you know when you're in a international psychoanalytic association kind of standard training or treatment you have to be four times a week and this sort of thing but I have patients come four times five times two times three times one time every other week you know depending on what's going on in Life and how their circumstances change over the years. I have them. I've had them go from sitting to laying down and vice versa, and it's worked out depending on you know whatever their needs are at the time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that entirely. And what to? Um, I think the IPA standards. It's supposed to be four times a week. Uh, which is so arbitrary um which actually i think might lead into speaking about psychoanalytic training and the requirements yeah i I think I'll, I'll, i'll i'll tell my story of um the always ongoing becoming psychoanalyst and my um So once I decided that I was going to go on this pathway of becoming a psychoanalyst, so then I thought that the way to become a psychoanalyst is to do psychoanalytic training because that's what makes you a psychoanalyst. Uh, So, but at the time all I had was a bachelor's degree in dance and in order to do psychoanalytic training you have to have a master's degree in something. So somebody uh, advised me to get a master's in social work And that way I could use the social work license to practice psychoanalysis. Uh, So I got my master's in social work from Hunter College and then went into psychoanalytic training. And I, I think I had the idea that that it, the experience of psychoanalytic training would be something different. I, uh, I had this expectation or wish that it would be something uh, rigorous and also stimulating, and the program that I went into is a really intensive, long program. Like, it takes people 10 years to get through it. So the idea of going into something deeply and coming out, uh, 10 years later being a psychoanalyst. Um, but then my experience, my actual experience of psychoanalytic training was not what I was expecting. And I found that, I was doing the formal training, but then also on the side, I found these other things like, like Das Umbahagen and then also the Lacan groups that I go to, which is, uh, the Lacanian compass group that's connected to the new Lacanian school. Uh, so those two things I was going to as like a sub, like a supplement, like on the side of my psychoanalytic training. But then I in my experience, these little, like, the side supplements were more exciting for me. (laughs) And i like, um, and then it got to a point where it's like, why am I, why am I doing this training if I'm not, um, if I'm not excited by it, if it's not stimulating for me? uh, Why am I paying money for these courses? Uh, And then also my part of the requirement of psychoanalytic training is your own training analysis, which... The requirement is 450 hours, uh, three days a week, for my institute that I was going to, which is entirely arbi- arbitrary. Like, who says 450 hours and then you're done? Uh, <laughs> and then, like, um, so I I came to a point, and this is after completing three years of training, where like everything just kind of came to a head at once. And I was feeling frustrated in my training analysis. I felt like it was dead and it wasn't going anywhere. And I felt frustrated with uh, the the courses that I was taking. Um, And then also, uh, once I had decided that I was going to practice in a Lacanian way, it it didn't really make sense to me to keep taking these other courses that are uh, ways of working that um, that I'm not interested in doing. Like, I already had an overview of everything. I like, had an idea of different ways of thinking. Um, so if I to focus on being, uh, practicing in, in the Lacanian orientation, it would make sense to focus more on that. Um, so it was uh, a little bit over a year ago. Like, these uh, three things kind of coincided. And the other thing... There was the two things that were sort of the last straw. I was going to a, a class at my institute that was, uh, like, at nine o'clock on a Tuesday. Uh, there was only three people in the class, and like the instructor was like falling asleep during the, like, there was it was felt so dead, and um, and I just like. I left the class, and I'm like, why am I doing this? And then I and then I got home, and in my mailbox, there was a invitation for the graduation ceremony of the Institute, and it was at this, like, super bourgeois, uh, like, uh, art uh, mansion in Gramercy, and, like, the ticket was really expensive, and I'm just feeling like, do I even want to be a part of this? Is that... Uh, Like, why am I doing this? Um, So that that was, like, that day was it. (laughs) And I, like, I made my own cut there, and I quit my training analysis uh, just – shy of fulfilling the 450 hours I think I was at like 436 (laughs) so like I so I I quit the analysis I quit going to the class I was like halfway through a 12-week course I quit going to the class um and just like that was it was a very abrupt like no I, I why am I doing this and then I decided at that point that I would only I would only do things that I'm interested in doing Uh, and that stimulate me and make me excited about psychoanalysis. And so I've moved away from the Institute towards doing my own formation, which involves the Lacanian compass group. And then I I switched analysts. So now I'm going to a Lacanian analyst. Uh, I have a Lacanian supervisor, uh, the cartel, uh, going to Umbahagen events, and then also a peer supervision group with Umbahagen, so like piecing together my own formation out of things that I actually want to do and that that help me practice and make me excited about psychoanalysis, so that's the, the pathway that I've decided to take.
0: That's wonderful. That experience sounds very similar to what happened to me, too. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and I think um, I think once I discovered Lacan, like every uh, and not to say that everything else is bad or boring, but like there's nothing like Lacan, just to be honest. <laughs> like it, it's very special, and I, I think it's the I I personally feel like if it wasn't for Lacan, I don't know if I would still be interested in psychoanalysis. I think that that. Uh, I, I can't even really articulate what it is but uh it, it's so it to to me it feels so different from uh most other perspectives.
0: Yeah, and especially the school I was in, at least, was teaching mostly ego psychologists. And then mm-hmm. once I started reading Lacan and then found out he was analyzed by an ego psychologist, I was like, I completely understand why he like ran out of his analysis. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I'm going to run out of mine, too. And I went and got a Lacanian, a David, I David Lichtenstein, to supervise me. And then I got a Lacanian analyst, too. And I think Lacan also, like his return to Freud, really that's what you need to read Freud and Lacan. Mm -hmm. And Lacan, like, reread Freud because he was right. Everything got so completely on a completely different trajectory. And everyone, you know, paid homage that Freud started this whole thing, but the theory and the practice had gotten so far removed from, I feel like, what Freud's original intention was
1: yeah and actually, to give my the institute that I went to a little bit of credit i in the initial courses it was a lot of reading Freud, which i I might not have read that much Freud if it were based on my own
0: uh motivation <laughs> so um yeah no, I think that's a good point though because <laughs> my institute i mean I had already been reading a lot of Freud on my own, but um I think in the beginning the training was better because we were reading Freud, and mm-hmm. then it, when it started getting more into the ego psychologist and other things, they kind of lost me. And I yeah. think in that, like, it just see it. That's that's why I feel like training or psychoanalytic like, formation should be more like an individual basis because it was useful in the beginning, but at some point, just like any other relationship, it like ran its course, it served its time, it wasn't useful anymore. And once something's not useful for you anymore serving you well you shouldn't be stuck in it just to like accumulate like you said a certain amount of hours because psychoanalysis doesn't work like that like you're analyzed you analyze yourself you get analyzed a certain amount of time it runs its course you can't say how long that's going to be i understand like them saying like you need to analyze patients for a minimum of 18 months fine that seems like reasonable but as long as like the idea of, like, how many times per week and that three times or four times or two times, like, the patient's committed to treatment, a lot of the process is happening outside the room as well. And if their life circumstances are changing because they're changing because they're an analysis, like, why should they be inhibited or restrained? Same with you. Like, if I'm getting a better job and getting teaching positions and stuff because I'm doing my own growth and, like, work on myself, like, why should you be stuck in this kind of pre-fabricated structure Sure, that's not really based on anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also the use of quantification to uh, to say
1: that something is, you, you do your 450 hours, you do your three or four times a week, that uh, I think it... it gives like a sense of solidity to it like that it's something that's done the requirement is met you can you know check it whereas uh the the subjective experience of going through an analysis is more ambiguous and
0: like how can you really say if it's done or not um and especially like you said like you got a master's in social work first so and that's the other thing. When I went into training, I, I had a PsyV, a doctorate in psychology, so I already ha- have a license under that, and I didn't really understand that I could do psychoanalysis with the license that I already had. I thought I had to get this certification from a psychoanalytic mm-hmm. institute, but you don't. You just have to be feel like you're ethically, you've studied it enough, you've undergone your own analysis. That's your decision as a professional when you feel like you're ethically able to practice psychoanalysis. So it's, yeah. it's not like a license that you need.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, I don't think I realized it at the time because I had thought that I would complete a psychoanalytic training, uh, that getting the master's in social work and having the social work license has given me liberty to leave the institute when I uh, came to the point where it wasn't useful for me anymore. Whereas if I needed the license in psychoanalysis, I would have to continue. Uh, so I, I um, it, as far as beca- calling yourself a psychoanalyst and the self-authorization, um, is something that I like you don't I don't think you can just uh call yourself a psychoanalyst that you have to have a a process and be in check with other people uh but but the the institute is not the 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 only way to do it there are other ways that are maybe even better so my uh my introduction to Lacan, uh, prior to Fink, when I was in my social work program, I, there was a, as an elective, there was a psychoanalytic, uh, technique and we read the mirror stage, which was the first Lacan that I had ever read. And I remember initially hating it. It was like, it's only three pages long, but it's like, it, it, goes all over the place it goes like 12 different places and it didn't make any sense and I was like who is this arrogant French person who you know is so esoteric and like alienating everyone by being so hard to understand and then it was it was later that I discovered Fink uh which I think kind of like softened the entry into Lacan, made it a little more palatable to begin with. Uh, And one thing, actually one thing that really resonated with me, so I had completed my social work program, which I... I appreciate Hunter because of the, the social justice aspect of it. It's very much like there was a lot about race and poverty, and I think that that's very important. On the, on the clinical side, it was very relational and also about empathy and you know feeling what the patient is feeling and it 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 got to a point where it felt like a little too warm and fuzzy for my style and um I I also don't think that that's very helpful for the patient to be like you know oh I feel what you feel uh so then reading think um like one of the first things and I think it was the clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis uh that like the first thing they said is like it's not about empathy and not that empathy is bad but the way that most people go about empathy is by uh, relating it to your own experience and once once you're in your own experience you're not listening to their experience and not recognizing the difference that they're you might have had a similar life experience but their experience the patient's experience of it is something entirely different (laughs) So I, I think I was, I was like, oh, thank God, it's not about, like, empathic attunement anymore. <laughs> like, I can relax and, like, listen to what the patient is saying. Um, so I think that really resonated with me. And then that kind of, like, eased me into reading Lacan more. And then I took it as a challenge. I'm like, this is so hard to read. I'm really going to read this. Uh, so that I, start, yeah, I started reading the seminars and some of the ACREE. And it's an ongoing process. I haven't read any uh, or anything, everything. Um, but I, I also think that there's something about the difficulty of it that is uh, exciting for me. But I'm, uh, but it, reading a Lacan seminar from start to finish, I. I feel like it, it, his way of, uh, kind of talking around things and then, uh, entering from different ways and then like re-entering and then talking around. And I, I feel like when I read a Lacan seminar from start to finish that I've been on this journey, like he took me somewhere and I can't really tell you exactly where we went, but we went somewhere and I came out at the end, uh, being different
0: yeah and that way I always feel like it's like mirrors the psychoanalytic process and that's what I really like about his work because I maybe because it is the seminars are all spoken and not written but I feel like you kind of like like I tell people like you don't have to understand everything he's saying or know all the references or whatever just like get whatever you get out of it and keep reading it and see Mm -hmm. like you'll pick up things and if you read it again you'll pick up different things and it's fine you know not everyone has to be like a Lacanian scholar philosopher to get, get stuff out of it and understand it. And I don't yeah. think it's meant to be taken that way. Uh, the decree yeah. is very different. When you read that, it's like every sentence you could talk about for an hour. Like a David Lichtenstein study group, we could read like one paragraph for an hour and a half, you know, and <laughs> just talk yeah. about all the references. But the speaking is very different. Yeah, yeah. Like even aside from like
1: understanding the content of Lacan seminars, I feel like it does something to you to uh, like initial like reading. Uh, like there was a like uh um like what he starts to say and then what he says next it was always like i felt like in reading most things you the with the beginning of a sentence you have an idea of what the end of the sentence is going to be but with lacan it would be like what the fuck just happened like it was these like, kind of like turns um that i mean i think that i've adapted enough to his style to uh, to have a sense of how it goes but initially like it felt really jarring um but i think that, that carries over into the process of uh, practicing, because uh, just like always expecting, always expecting a surprise, and not like because the patient is saying such and such, you think that the next thing they're going to say is such and such, but to be open for that moment that something something
0: different happens. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. What milieu would you recommend to start with? Um,
1: I, well, he has, uh, I think it's from his uh, seminar, um, his, introdu- uh, ordinary psychosis, which in- introduces the, di- uh, the diagnosis as, uh, like kind of replacing what like people call borderline. But when you, when there's not a clear, uh, A a different differential diagnosis between neurotic and psychotic, and uh, ordinary psychosis is on the side structurally on the side of psychosis, but it um, I think that it it adapts to the the people that we see today in the clinic, that it's not it's not the same, we're not in the same world of Freud or of Lacan, even, and it can't it can't be taken for granted anymore that the patient is going to be neurotic, that there has to be clear signs of neurosis in order to call the patient a, a neurotic. So kind of leaning on, the, uh, leaning on the side of being careful and understanding uh, potential psychosis until you know for sure that there are uh, definite signs of the, the name of the father of being like a repression and being connected to the symbolic order.
0: And maybe I wonder if that maybe sometime i mean i haven't read it so i don't know what he says but i wonder if maybe more people might fit into that kind of gray area um because of the kind of chronic nature of stress and that sort of thing like there's so many people what they call like these like chronic cases of post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that Uh where people are just constantly exposed to trauma and constantly re-traumatized or abused or something yeah, I think
1: so, and I, um, it also seems that there, need to, there needed to be a when you when you have a patient who's not overtly psychotic, there uh, a, a space for. Uh, like an in-between space almost that they're they're not quite fully connected to the to the symbolic like uh it's very uh, precarious uh, it's like slipping, loose yeah like slipping away from the
0: symbolic but they're not they're not schreber like they're not uh, like full-on psychosis like in a psychotic episode but they could it could happen yeah yeah or it could not happen Mm -hmm. like being on the
1: edge I think that's also the reason to be uh, careful with these patients when you don't quite know yet to not uh, once once you're clear that you have a neurotic then you can be enigmatic and cut sessions and uh, try to shake things up but when you don't quite know yet um, like I I lean on the side of caution to begin with um, to not not do something that's going to throw someone into a, a psychotic episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely found like when I was in training for my society, uh, I worked in a lot of hospitals with like severe mental illness. And and you know, there was always these times where they would say like don't my supervisors would say like don't go into people's dreams too much. Like that you don't uh-huh. want them to go outside of waking reality more because they're already out outside of it. Enough. (laughs) So, our, our idea was that we had to ground people a lot more, and like if they started talking about their dreams, I'd be like, "How did you sleep last night?" and kind of bring them back to like the materiality of sleep rather than like their dream life and that sort of thing. And even though I haven't heard anything about that in any sort of psychoanalytic. Uh, training or formation it's still something that I do sometimes if people even if people that are neurotics seem particularly stressed or like they might be you know really having a a crisis moment I'll still use those techniques to kind of help them ground a bit more because they don't need to be kind of thrown off anymore but I think that's more more with patients that I have that are uh, experiencing more chronic forms of st- stressors and that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and as as someone who wants to be a psychoanalyst i think it's easy to get sucked into oh they're talking about their dreams Uh how exciting let's go there and to be able to uh, bring it back in and be a little bit more concrete and
0: yeah yeah it's been useful sometimes so that's why i try i try to remember all the techniques i've learned because even in patients that have been in analysis once in a while that 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 kind of thing can be useful Mm -hmm. it's never happened like in a patient that's in analysis proper where they're coming four times a week or something like that and then that and that in itself the just coming to the office that often I feel is like the container or whatever you want to call it that Mm -hmm. keeps them very grounded and someone's only coming once a week or something like that sometimes they might need something a little more stabilizing yeah what's the last seminar you read of Lacan yeah
1: (laughs) Um, so in the group the Lacanian Compass group that I go to we are reading seminar 5 the new translation that came up by Russell Grigg
0: I have not read that
1: one yet I'm only partway through it. I'll, I'll, I, I won't spoil the ending. <laughs> <laughs> How's it so far? Um, we're really just beginning. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it is. It's early Lacan, the formations of the unconscious. So it is. It is very much about the the symbolic and about uh, wit and slips of the tongue,
0: and uh, which is still entirely useful and in practice nice yeah I just decided I don't know like three days ago that I just have to see which ones I actually have and then finally just order all the rest of the ones that are translated into English so that I have them because I think I only have I have like 20 and 10 and I think I have like 6 maybe but I just need them all. I realized once I left the office in New York, I was reading a lot of Jameson's things. (laughs) And all these things that I thought I had, I don't actually have. They were Jameson's. (laughs) Like the Foucault, too. I wanted to read a... Reference Foucault today, um, the history of madness, and I was like, "Where is my history of madness?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, it's in New York, Crans <laughs> Jameson's. It's not mine." So I have to like take a psychoanalytic inventory and order some books to get my library beef back up. Kinda
1: yeah, spoiled. but it is, it's a, a, a phantom limb. <laughs> a phantom limb. <laughs> you feel like you still have it.
0: <laughs> exactly. I say, used to being in the office with of Jameson. Like, wait, hey, where's my office? Should I say something about uh, Das
1: Umbahagen and my fantasy of Das Umbahagen? Yeah, that'd be great. So my, uh, my introduction to Umbahagen was another instance of hearsay that gave uh, the idea that there was something exciting that I didn't know about. And so I heard about Umbahagen from someone, and then I went on to, I googled it and went to the Umbahagen website. And it was the, the old website that there used to be where you needed a, a login in order to get in to the website. So there was the idea that it was something hard to get into, but there must be something really exciting there. So then in order the process to get a login, you needed to email someone. So I, I sent the email and then didn't hear anything back. And then I tried again and I sent another email and finally got a, a login to go into the website. So like, yeah, I'm finally in. And then to get in, like once I was in, there wasn't really a lot there. I think there was only like a couple of videos posted and that was what was in there. But I think it was the i the idea of there being something, um, something mysterious and something exciting that I, that was hard to get at and that there was something there. And then once I, I finally got onto the listserv and then there was an announcement for the general party meeting, uh, that was in the, um, in the, in the space, um, uh, in Soho in the basement and then getting in there, it, uh was another like step of of trying to get into something that's hard to get into <laughs> and then I, I remember showing up at the building and like not knowing which buzzer to buzz and like scrolling through the names and there was uh, there was Kafka is one of the names I was like Oh, this is so Kafka esque, <laughs> like like this like pure, like like hard thing to get into, and like everything is futile. <laughs> so I was like I was so I'm like buzzing Kafka, and I, like finally got in. And then I also uh, so then the the meeting was in the in the basement space where the offices were. Uh, so like it was like literally like something underground, like this underground meeting that was really secret and exciting. Uh, and I, a lot of that is my own fantasy, um, but I think that it. um, I think that it corresponds to my fantasy of, uh, and this is my connection to Judson church and the dance movement that happened in the sixties and seventies, where it was dancers who were fed up with like conventional dance and even like modern dance um, in New York city and decided to uh, come together in the basement of a church and do what became postmodern dance. And, do, like, the happenings and uh, improvisations using uh, pedestrian movement and just doing something, like, entirely different from the what would be, like, more the institution of dance. So in my own mind, I made this parallel between Umbahagen and Judson. <laughs> so I had, like, this fantasy. It was, like, the Judson of psychoanalysis. And then, like, also coincidentally, like, at the same time, there was an event where um, it was a reading of civilization's uh, civilization and, and Its Discontents at Judson Church. So it was like this bizarre combination of these like two fantasies that I had in my mind coming together. It was like, what is going on? Like the, uh, like this is the Judson, the Judson of psychoanalysis. And like, this is where the exciting thing is happening. It's, it's underground. It's not, it's not in the formal institutes. It's like something else that's outside of, um, and then, yeah I've been uh, that was my entry into site uh, to um, into Umbahagen and then I've continued to feel the same excitement with the events and I think uh, it, it's not so much that it's the, the undergroundness, but the fact that everything that is done by Umbahagen is because of pe- people want to. Like nobody's telling you you have to do something. It, you create event if you want to. you go to something if you want to. It's not like requirements like you have to do uh, you know such and such uh, that that keeps it alive, that it's all out of the desire of what people want to do. and i've I've found it really helpful in um, in my own uh, approach to psychoanalysis and keeping it stimulating.
0: No, it's a great point. That's the whole purpose. And like you said, like it can be a complement to someone's training, or it can be you can do your own formation independently if if you so choose. It's really up to each individual. Um, and maybe that is why it's still alive, because because it is, you know, it has lulls and it has events. I mean, I think when we first started, we were doing something like every single week, you know, and then mm-hmm. there's been periods where there are, there aren't events for a little while, um, or there's people people that are were once doing events as Mbahagin or doing their own events somewhere else, you know, under their own name or, you know, with another group or whatever. Um, But I like that it's eclectic in that way but continues to... I love that there was a general meeting again recently. That made me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) And there there was the idea of having them regularly.
1: I don't know if if that's going to continue. Uh, But I I think there are... uh, efforts to keep it going uh i also I, I think there's something necessary about it dying down to for it to come back up again like if it's uh, this a perpetual effort if, if it becomes an effort like oh like drudgery like oh we have to keep this going uh then it's not it doesn't have the same uh flavor as like okay there's a space where nothing's happening i want to make something happen which uh It has a different uh, feeling to it.
0: Exactly, and that's how it started in the first place. And if someone like, like you said, like if somebody notices, oh, like the, the trans psychoanalysis working group that's going on, um, you know, somebody wanted to have an event, and then the working group that keeps the discussion ongoing has been born from the event. And you know, they're meeting in New York in person, but then they're sending emails around to anybody who's interested in the topic to like follow along with the readings and that sort of thing. If you don't live in New York and you can't be there in person. Person. That's been really great to be able to keep in touch with it in that mm-hmm. way, um, even being in Europe now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you're, um, so now I'm going to interview you. So you're starting <laughs> uh, keeping Imbuhagen going
0: Euro style. Yeah, that's that's what I've been thinking. I haven't done anything yet, but just since I finally now settled, um, I mean, I have in the spring. I have, well, in May in particular, I have like four different conferences that I'm speaking at. So there's the SIB conference, Psychoanalysis for Psychoanalysis and Philosophy, Um, and they're having their conference in Stockholm in May, May 2nd to 4th, so I'm speaking there. And then there's another conference for Psychoanalysis and Politics that Lene Osted does. Um, also in Stockholm from May 10th to 12th. (laughs) So those are both happening. And then uh, Carl and I are having our conference on esoteric modernism and psychoanalysis in Italy May 30th to June 1st. And then I come back to Sweden and then there's a conference that I'm speaking at on like uh, inpatient uh, art, like patients that make art in the psychiatric hospitals. Um, Since speaking of that, it's like in Gothenburg, Sweden from June 10th and 11th or 11th and 12th. So it's very busy, that period of time. Um, So there are things happening. So I think Uh, between having those conferences and then Manya and I did the book on violence and psychoanalysis and then rendering will be out in a few weeks. So Mm -hmm. we're going to have launch parties for both of those books in April. So I think I'll meet people then and then at these conferences and then I'll see like you know, who wants to study (laughs) Lacan? This is this thing I did in New York, kind of see what we can get going because, um, yeah, the idea that any psychoanalyst has to be an IPA is something I'm fundamentally against at this point. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So there must be other people that either don't aren't in the IPA that are psychoanalysts or are lacanians or both or uh, don't know that they don't have to be in the IPA to be a psychoanalyst. Um, so if there are, I would like to meet them and work with them too. Yeah, you'll have to find them. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm sure it will happen mm. in time. So there's like you, you had asked about my dreams previously,
1: and I have um, a couple of reoccurring dreams, and one is that I'm back in a Cirque du Soleil show, or it's a new Cirque du Soleil show, and uh, these dreams are always uh, blissful. Uh, that's one form of the dream, and then the other dream is that I'm back in a show with the music group that I toured with. And I, I still have this sort of nostalgia for, for touring with them. Uh, and we did... It, I think it was just fun because uh, it, it was this perfect combination of we would be in these big like music festivals with like, thousands of people and like, really high energy. But then also the choreography that was done by Vanessa Walters uh, was really kind of quirky, modern dance. So it was um, something that was mainstream electro pop uh, music but then also very performance art at the same time and I like I still have like a, a nostalgic memories of we toured through Europe we went to like most of the countries in Europe we also did uh, some of South America we did Sao Paulo and Bogota Mexico City uh, we did a show in Moscow Uh and then recently, there was in Brooklyn in the Prospect Park Band Show, uh, Fisher Spooner was coming uh Doing a show, but by that time the the show that I was in was already done, and there was a it, the, it was a new album, it was a different aesthetic, um, and there was new dancers that we weren't a part of anymore. But there was this idea, like since it's in Brooklyn and all of the old dancers are here, let's do a reunion. So we like relearned the choreography to emerge, which is their big hit. Uh, so I'm like, you know, pretty much a retired dancer, like getting back into dancer shape. Uh, so we. Did Two of the uh, two of the pieces that we used to do on tour, and it was like I one of the most fun experiences of my life with a big audience, and uh, I, I I still um, I feel like if there was a way to still like keep that going in my life, I would. Um, I don't know how to do it as I age and approach
0: aging and death. Uh, <laughs> like how to keep that how to keep that spirit alive. Yeah, but that's amazing. That was just recently too, right? Yeah, it was. Was it over the... It must have been over the summer. Last that's, year. When they,
1: that's when they do those summer concerts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we got the old group back together. We relearned the choreography. Uh, it was really fun. It was, like... And we were kind of joking about it, like, at grandma's Grandma's on stage, because we're all, like, I'm 40, you know, 41 now. <laughs> so it's like getting the grandma team back, back together. Uh, but, yeah, it was really, really a good time. The other thing that I was thinking about talking about... Um, was uh, so my first job out of social work school was working at Lifenet, the mental health crisis hotline. Um. So my my internship, my my second internship in my social work program was at Lifenet, which is the mental health crisis hotline for New York City. It um, it doesn't exist anymore. It it changed into something different. But when I uh, when I completed that internship, they offered me a full time job working for LifeNet, and it was. Uh, really interesting to be on the receiving end of just like phone calls that are coming in from the city. <laughs> and some some calls were crisis calls where I actually had to call EMS. Um, I, I tried to go light on uh, interventions I, and only do it when it's necessary. Uh, but then there was also other other types of calls that were we had frequent callers. And a lot of them were actually uh, psychotic, or diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And they would call, and I would recognize their voice right away. And it, I think that that uh, introduced me or made me uh, aware of the their sort of different, different connection to the symbolic order, or like loose connection to the symbolic order—the way that, uh, of using speech and language—and like, the terms that they would use for it would be, like, tangential or disorganized or, you know, um, but just, like, a different, uh, a different connection to words, to where, like, using words in a different way than we usually do. Uh, and mainly what I would do with those calls is just listen to them and uh, not, not challenge their delusions or just uh, listen and agree. Uh, uh, and I think that's all that they needed. Uh, and they would call like on a on a nightly basis and I you know, it's like, Hey Mike, how's it going? you yeah. know. Um so there was that type of call. And then the other thing that was interesting, um, in New York City, there's uh, city information, which is 311, if you call 311. And if you have some complaint about you know, your apartment building or whatever, uh, you could call 311 and make a complaint. So if someone called 311 and they seemed uh, psychotic or delusional, they would forward the call to us. But it seemed like they didn't tell the person that they were forwarding the call. <laughs> so it's like they still thought they were reporting to the city. And they're like, yeah, my uh, my neighbor, they're, they're sneaking into my apartment during the night and they're taking all of my stuff and they're replacing it with other stuff that looks the same, but it's not the same. It's inferior items, like identical inferior items in my apartment. And you just say, oh, that, you know, that sounds unsettling. I'm sorry that's happening. Uh, tell me more about it and just go with that. Uh, but I've, I found it really interesting. And because I've never, um, I haven't had the chance to work in a um, hospital setting where I have more close contact with uh, with schizophrenia or a more overt psychosis, that it, it's, uh, for me, it was a uh, an introduction to their way of, uh, relating to language and also their, their uh, delusions or hallucinations, if you want to, um, call it that, uh, at, at kind of a, um, from a, like almost from a place of observation, because I'm not their therapist and I'm not their psychiatrist, but just like someone who's listening. So it, for, it was a good, uh, opportunity for me to learn about that with, uh, with like a limited, uh, there without there being that much at stake. Like, I wasn't responsible for this person's well-being, uh, like, <laughs> like, uh, like, limited li- liability in a sense, which I think was a really good experience for me to, to just, like, have that uh, uh, period of, like, observation.
0: And probably for them too, because there's not because you're not going to like do something about it, you know. You're not going mm-hmm. to prescribe something or make an intervention. You're listening, you know. And probably usually when they go to a doctor or, or or someone they know and are talking about that, they do try to do something about it, you know.
1: Yeah, like medicate them or uh, try to uh, you tell know, them they're like wrong. Yeah, <laughs> Re- reality testing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, which is. Just- like the last thing they need um so yeah i i i found that experience to be really valuable for
0: me. yeah that's something i would have never thought of that there's patients that use the crisis line kind of regularly as a, a support mm-hmm. like on would a nightly like- basis almost
1: yeah which is also a good sign, especially for somebody uh, who who is like overtly psycho- uh, psychotic that like they are making some connection to the social link by calling us like they're not so like immersed in their own uh, I mean, like referring to Freud's idea on narcissism that uh, psychosis like everything is so connected inward that there is something uh, there is something reaching outward
0: towards speaking to other people. Like, mm-hmm. I think is a a good sign on their part. Mm-hmm. It's nice that the hotlines are being used in that way, mm-hmm. and not just for like, say, a crisis like a suicidal person or something like that. It's great that they're there for that, too, but it's good that they're used in other ways as well. I knew somebody that worked at this thing that I think is a little bit newer, this, like, a crisis text line that they have where you can just text, I guess, because people are used to texting more nowadays, where they would just text in and talk to people that way, and like, check in. Yeah, that's kind of what
1: happened to to LifeNet. LifeNet doesn't exist anymore. Um, It turned into NYC Well, which they expanded their services to include uh, instant messaging and text, which I think is is a good idea. I think on our end it didn't uh, it didn't quite work, and that's when I left actually. Um, and I think part of it there was we were understaffed, so if I was on a crisis or. A text with someone, and if another text came in, I had to take both simultaneously. Mm. And like, I'll try to manage two different conversations at once, which I um I'm not very good at multitasking. And I felt like I was doing a, a crappy job, like sp- splitting my attention between two different people. Uh, and it just got to the point where it's like this. I'm not like I I felt like I wasn't doing a uh, service to the people t- uh, texting in. Where I'm like, uh, and um that was that was the point when I decided to leave Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's hard though especially if they're both like critical situations it's difficult to have to split your attention like that yeah yeah interesting where else did you intern or do rotations my my
1: first year, uh, so this, the master's in social work is a two-year program. So you have one pl- uh, field pl- field placement internship for your first year, and then you have the second year. The first year, I was at Safe Horizon. Uh, which is a, an organization for um, people in domestic violence situations. And I, I liked it there. I, d- I felt like I didn't get enough or, or as much as I wanted experience being like a psychotherapist. It was um, more concrete services. Like case
0: management. Like,
1: yeah, like people uh, applying to housing Um, and also to like the office of victim services to get, uh, compensation for certain things. Uh, but it was, I, I feel like I I had like two people that I would call like patients who came for the the time of my, um, my field placement there and they came weekly. And I, I felt like that was what, uh, I, I felt like I was doing like my sort of naive version of psychotherapy with them, um, in retrospect, I uh, I was fumbling through, just really not knowing what I was
0: doing. <laughs> um, but, but that's what yeah. your first year is for. That's how you're learning. Yeah, yeah. Training. Yeah. yeah, but that's the thing. My my job at the hospital. The more we lost staff, um, the more cases I each of us that remained would get because they every time somebody would leave, they wouldn't replace them um and so by the end i was just doing case management and i'm like why do i ha- why am i a psychologist you know, and I'm just doing like applying for grants and applying for SSI and things like that, which patients needed, but I, mean, I can't do therapy with them and help them feel better if their material needs aren't being met and they don't have stable housing and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just really a shame that people in those critical situations are, for the most part, only getting case management and not really getting intensive psychotherapy that could really be useful at those yeah. times. yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Julie Fotheringham, psychoanalyst, dancer, and performance artist in New York City. For more, please visit her website, juliefotheringham.net. Our publisher's website, tripart.net renderingunconscious.org and my website DoctorVanessaSinclair dot
2: Dominant and submissive, we gain pleasure, consciousness, gender, and sexuality that make or structure was completely dismantled. The attempts to break down human sexuality while ourselves to ourselves. Polymorphously perverse. Likely a course as any described perversion in this way. Everyone that I've ever dreamed of being. These categories, but this is all part of human. Therefore, occupy both, and all have dared to traverse. Sexuality is fluid and the object that we are simply sexual. Thoughts about Freud and as they were both working desire is are the attribute is perfect. Experiences and each is just as valid and third mind In this case, a third being.